Last week, uh, Jill and I put the kids to bed, and we were finally able to get some times to ourselves. And we did what most couples do when you get your kids to bed early and you find yourself with some time and you think about as a happy, blissful, married couple, what can we do with the next couple of hours? So we did what most couples would do. We found ourselves on the couch, turned on the TV, and watched Jeopardy together. And this wasn't normal Jeopardy. This was the greatest of all time Jeopardy. And if you're not a fan of Jeopardy, uh, this, was, this was huge. Th- this was an incredible moment because I feel like Jeopardy is one of those shows that, that just like in sports, you're always trying to figure out, well, who's the greatest? You know, who's really actually the best? You know, if you're a sports fan like I am, you do this all the time. You say, who's the greatest race car driver of all time? You take people out of their eras and you try to put them against each other and you think about the qualities that they have and what makes them really good. We do this in baseball. We do this in basketball. We do this with quarterbacks, you know, and we've all declared and determined, yes, Peyton Manning is the greatest of all time. You know, when we look at that, and we try to figure out who is the goat of all of these specific areas. Now, I don't know that people used to always do this, but it's something about our generation. It's something about our context. It's something about our world today. Do you, do you get that? Everybody wants to know, who's the greatest? Who is the greatest of all time? So finally, Jeopardy decided, hey, we're going we're gonna to answer this question. We're going to look at this, and we're going to say, who is the greatest of all time? And so they put these three contestants against each other. Uh, the first contestant, they said, who has won the most money of all time? Well, that makes sense. Okay, so that person would seem to be the greatest of all time. They've won the most money. And then they said, what about the person who won the most money in one game? Doesn't that really make them the greatest of all time, right? And then they said, but no, 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 no. Then there's a third person, and we've probably all heard of Ken Jennings, who won the most games in a row. Was there a woo? Did I hear a, I heard a woo. That's awesome. I, I didn't expect to say Ken Jennings and have like the Ken Jennings fan club show up. That's awesome. Yes. But we've all heard of Ken Jennings. And that's actually, Jill and I were rooting for Ken Jennings. And I, we got into this thing and, you know, and he's guessing and we're going, come on, Ken, you can do this, Ken. And I'm thinking, I'm cheering for Jeffrey. What is going on in my life? How did I get here? But we're watching this, and it was so fascinating. And I realized in those moments, I literally know nothing. <laughs> we would watch this, and, they, and there were a couple clues that they had. I think they did like a before, now, and after. It was like a three-part deal. And they would, they would say the clue, and we'd sit there, and I'd just go, I don't even know what they're asking. Like, I, don't, I recognize five of those words on the screen. I feel like a pretty decently educated person. I'd sit there and go, these guys are really smart. And that's what we came to realize as we watched the show is just how incredibly smart these guys are. And so we listen to this and we'd, we'd, we'd look at it and we'd say, what is happening here? Like, this is just incredible. And finally, they came to a clue that I knew. As Ken Jennings looked at the screen and he said, Alex, he said, uh, I'll take movie quotes for a thousand, please. And I thought, no, I got this one. Let's see what happens. The clue he put up was this clue. It's the romantic quote heard next. And then he played this video. I love you. You complete me. 
And I just had... Shut up. Just shut up. Now, if you lived in the 90s at all, you know the romantic quote heard next. The answer is, what is? You had me at hello. Right? We've all heard that before. You had me at hello. But this clip reminded me of something. As soon as I saw it, it reminded me of the series starting over that we're in. Because if you know this movie, you know that Jerry Maguire walks into this room and he addresses his wife and this group of women that are in the room together and he begins to express some regrets that he has. He regrets that the company that they started together that represents these athletes, that they had a huge night, that things went incredibly well, that everything is moving in the right direction and he regrets that she wasn't there to share it with him. He regrets that in their time together that their life had started to run ravel, that their marriage had started to come apart at the seams, that they had become to grow apart. And he expresses this to regret to her. And then, somehow, what fixes all of that, all of that is just fixed when he looks at her and says, you, complete me. But guys, wouldn't it be great if that's all it took? When you were in the throes of some serious domestic discussions, and you could just look across the room, realizing that you failed to take the trash out and do the dishes, and just say, you, complete me. And she would say, why don't you put the complete inside the dishwasher like I asked you to do? That would complete me, right? But you, so you complete me. And we look at that, and this is, this is the thing about this, though. That this is interesting that this is on Jeopardy. Because I thought of all the stuff that these guys know. They know everything. They know all sorts of trivia about all sorts of things. But we know one thing about them that they don't know. Because it's something that all of us struggle with. It's something that all of us don't know. And that is love. That when it comes to relationships and love, no matter how much money you've won on Jeopardy, no matter how smart you are, no matter how many games you've won at this thing, we can all look at the three guys up there and realize this is an area that all of us wrestle with, that all of us have struggled with, trying to understand how to love. See, we all know that the way love is depicted in movies like Jerry Maguire, it's not realistic, is it? See, we continue to tell that same story. We lift it as the norm, don't we? We become convinced that somehow living happily ever after has something to do with finding the right person or the right feelings. If we could just love more, right? If we could just make the person that we live with act how we want them to act. Or if we find the right person to love, then maybe, maybe everything would just fall in place. I told Jill this morning, I said, there's something about this, though, is that I realize that the problem with the movies is that life is lived beyond the credits, isn't it? See, we never see what happens next, especially in the world of romance and romantic comedies, because you hardly ever make the sequel. What's the sequel to this? Them trying to actually figure life out, right? Because these high mountaintop moments where love is expressed seems grand, but we all know it's not easy. That love is lived out in the valleys, not on the mountaintops. 
It's lived after the credits roll. So what do we do about that? We know that love is a lot more complicated. So perhaps, here's here's the thing, perhaps we just need to discover a different model of love. Perhaps we need to stop saying that this is the model, that what we find in movies and TV shows, we know it's unrealistic, so why do we continue to model our lives after that kind of love? What if there was a different model? And what if this model of love can actually be lived out in all of our relationships? What if this isn't just about dating or marriage? See, now I know when we start to talk about this, some of us are going to elbow the person next to us, right? We're going to say, see, I want you to listen today, because if you listen to this, you know, listen up, this is for you, but I want to be clear, this is not for someone else today. This isn't about them. This isn't about your expectation of their application of love. This today, this is about you. So here's what I want to do. I want to do something a little different. I'm going to give you the bottom line of my sermon. So if for some reason, I hope you don't have to, but if for some reason you have to leave in the next two minutes, I want you to get the bottom line. And I want you to hear this today. And then we're going to go and figure out where did that bottom line come from. Here's the bottom line. This new understanding of love is different. Because it isn't as much about the people you love or the way you feel, but the kind of person you are becoming. This new understanding of love is different because it isn't as much about the people you love or the way that you feel, but the kind of person you are becoming. So where do we get this model of love that is focused on the kind of person we are becoming? We find this definition of love in a letter in the Bible written to a church that's in the city of Corinth. This is a Greek city. It's an ancient city. It's a city the Apostle Paul went to to start a church. It's probably one of the most dysfunctional pictures of any church that we ever have. If you feel like, you know, you look at Scripture and you think everything is roses and rainbows and Just read the letters to 1st and 2nd Corinthians and understand that there was uh, conversation going back and forth between this church and Paul as he's trying to help them figure things out because they are an absolute mess. Dysfunctional and arguing and angry and frustrated. There's not a whole lot of what you would call love present in this place. It's the kind of place that people would walk into and say, these people don't seem to get along real well. And that's great. That's how we know this is legit. Because if he can talk to these people who are so messed up and broken about love, then he knows that he can talk to us. Because I know that I don't have this figured out. I know that we don't have this figured out. So we have something in common with the Corinthian people. So listen to this. I'm going to start out in 1 Corinthians 13. Here's what Paul has to say to this group of dysfunctional, unloving people. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Now, I promised you that this wasn't a sermon exclusively about dating 
and marriage relationships. But I just read you a passage that you've probably heard at 99% of the weddings that you have attended, right? See, we use this passage to implore people to live up to a standard of love, and then we expect the same in return. But I want you to hear something. In so doing, we do these verses a disservice and what they have to teach us. See, remember, Paul was writing this, these words, to a church filled with children and parents and grandparents and widows and singles and couples, all trying to understand how to live within a context of a community seeking to follow Jesus. See, sometimes what happens is we hear a passage like this, we think about the context in which we've heard it, and we can only imagine it within that context. But what's beautiful about this set of verses is they're so much bigger than that context. They can be applied to romantic love, but it's only because of the context in which we understand it that it can be applied to romantic love. It doesn't start there. That's just one of the many applications, but where it starts, it feeds down into all of those different types of relationships, and that's the beauty, that's the power of understanding the context of a verse like this. So what I want to do is, I don't want to just sit here, I don't want to just say, look, okay, so this is love, and this is the kind of love you should be looking for, because I think that's what tends to happen with a passage like this, again, we sit there and we read this at a wedding, right? And then we look and we say, that's exactly how they love each other. It's so beautiful. And when people don't live up to the standard that we set, ah, well, just couldn't live up to it. But what if there's something deeper going on here? And what if we understood the context so we could see what's happening? So let's back up. Let's go to the beginning of the chapter. We don't have time this morning to go through the whole book, which will give us even more context to it, but let's start at the beginning of the chapter. Listen to what Paul says. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Now, those are great, beautiful words, but I have no idea what they mean when you first read them, right? They're great. They're fantastic. But what is Paul getting at? See, Paul begins this by creating a stack, a stack of things that could define this church as a healthy church. See, he talks in the beginning about the ability to be able to miraculously speak those from other languages and regions, spreading the message of Jesus to your neighbors. He says, if I had the ability to miraculously begin to speak to people so they could understand the gospel in all of these places, but I don't have love, I'd have nothing. They say, oh, wouldn't that be great to have that gift to be able to do that, to reach these people around us? He says, if I had the ability to share messages that convict our community to change their ways and to live more like Jesus, wouldn't that be amazing? Everybody says, yes, that's the kind of people we want to be. And he says, but if I don't have love, that doesn't matter. Then he goes on and he says, if I had incredible faith and generosity that could move mountains, that could move charity to sacrifice, man, wouldn't that be an amazing, beautiful kind of church? He says, but without love, that just doesn't matter. 
think about that and I think, wouldn't that be a beautiful church? The kind of church that reaches its community with the kind of language that reaches our community. Wouldn't it be beautiful to have the kind of ability to talk about Jesus in such a way that we all got so fired up on Sunday mornings that we all said, I'm going to change away everything that I live. And I'm going to live completely differently because of that. Oh, I want to have that kind of Jesus in my life. And man, if I, if I could just be the kind of person who gives and has faith that doesn't worry about things and just says, God's in control and I know what he's going to do and we are going to change this world together and we're all going to sacrifice to make that happen. Man, that'd be the kind of church that would make us all want to jump and shout and go crazy, right? We wouldn't be able to have chairs in here because we'd be worshiping so much that chairs would get in the way. And then he says, but you know what? If you don't have love, you can't have any of that. None of that matters. That's a huge downer, isn't it? People are kind of looking and they're saying, what kind of church do you want us to be, Paul? He says, you could be all these things. I want you to be all these things. If you don't have love, it's nothing. It doesn't mean anything without love. Man, that's, what is Paul talking about? Why does this matter so much? Listen to what he says. The, the word that Paul uses here for love is the word of agape. Now, it is different from other words of love in the Greek language, and you've probably heard this before, but there's different words for love. There's a Greek word that means empathy. There's a Greek word that means romance. Uh, there's a Greek word that would kind of mean like attraction. And there's these different types of words that the Greeks could pull from to utilize. We don't really have that benefit, do we? When we talk about loving something, when we talk about um, we talk about the kind of love that means empathy or friendship. We say love, right? Now, we might add, I love you, brother. Like I say to my friend, I love you, brother. Well, that's that kind of love, right? And he, said, and he says, we don't have that ability to do that today. We, can't, we don't have a word that just means that. Uh, there's the other word that, again, that, that, that means this idea of romance, well, when we say love, the problem is that when I love pizza means the same, same thing as I love my wife. That becomes a problem, doesn't it? We just don't have the language. We're missing the ability to speak in that kind of tone. So he says there's a different kind of love at work here, and the people would have caught this right away. It's a unique word in the Bible that means unconditional, God-like love. And that's what I want you to understand that people would have heard. When Paul says love like this, when he says this is what love looks like, it's unconditional, God-like love. Here's the thing. It would seem unrealistic to apply to humans. I think that's not possible. How can we have God-like love? And that's the beauty of this. That's Paul's point. See, Paul is saying as Followers of Jesus, as followers of Jesus, we live a different kind of life. We don't live a life that can be defined in boxes in the ways that we're used to. He says you have to have a holy imagination that separates you from this normal way of looking at life and moving it over to here to something completely different, something abnormal, something weird, something that doesn't make sense, something that you feel a tension about. And he says when you feel that kind of tension, you say, I can't live like that then you must be leaning into God-like stuff. 
He says, that's unconditional God-like love. And he says, lean that direction. It's going to be hard, but lean that direction. Because that is what the church is supposed to look like. It can have all these other things, but it doesn't have God-like love. It is nothing. As followers of Jesus, we have to learn to live a new life. We have to move beyond our usual definitions of love into something new. So he defines then what that love looks like. He says, this is what it is. Now look what it looks like. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But here's the key. There's something going on in these verses. And it's going to change everything for us. See, the words we see, they seem to be descriptive, don't they? they? They seem to be a way of being. And there's a problem with this. The love we experience doesn't live up. It doesn't live up to this. You can find multiple places where we say in our lives, I, I thought I experienced love like that. And then it didn't live up to it. So it becomes a fairy tale. It becomes an impossibility limited to the movies. But the thing that changes, and this is where this is so great, is that these are not written as definition. These aren't written as a state of being. They're actually written as active verbs. This is where it's so important for us to understand and recognize that there's something going on in the way that he is writing this. What he's saying is, these are not something to look for, okay? Because I know we start getting into grammar, we start getting into active verbs, passive verbs, all that kind of stuff. We start to check out a little bit, right? Here's how Paul is saying this. Don't look for this kind of love. Don't look for this kind of love. Live out this kind of love. This isn't a noun to find. It's a verb to be. And Paul didn't come up with it on his own. Paul didn't make this up on his own. He learned this from Jesus. Let's back up. John 13, 34, Jesus said this. A new, a new command I give you. Love one another. A new command? It doesn't seem real new, does it? A new command I give you. Now, what's interesting about this is that the word that Jesus uses for new connotes this idea of strange or remarkable. <laughs> that you look and go, that's a weird command. That's a strange command that Jesus is giving us. And the reason is because of what Jesus does with this. What is remarkable about this is that he uses that imperative form of the verb. Meaning that Jesus didn't command his followers to feel something. He commanded his followers to do some things. And see, this is what Paul is getting at in that 1 Corinthians passage. Paul is saying, be patient, be kind. Be humble, honor others, be forgiving. This kind of love, 
Love that is an action isn't love we look for. It's love that we create in our lives, in moments with the people around us. It's not love that we say, I'm looking for the kind of love that feels like this. Paul says, it's the kind of love that you be. It's the kind of love that you do. Do these things. Be this. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Then he goes on. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where the tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. And it seems like, again, that Paul just went, right? He took a left turn. He said, where's he going? What's he doing with this? What does this have to do with love? See, Paul is saying this. You can have all the knowledge in the world, like Ken Jennings. You can be as sacrificial and charitable as Mother Teresa. You can go be a missionary, sharing God's story with the world. Paul isn't saying those things don't matter. Listen, listen. Paul is saying that those things have a purpose in this world, at this time. See, this is key. Paul says, but when completeness comes, completeness, what's he talking about? He's talking about when Jesus restores, when Jesus renews, when heaven meets earth and this place is restored to what God desired it to be. He says, when that happens, all of these other things, they don't matter anymore because completeness has come. He says, there's, there's no need for any of this at that point because it's what it's supposed to be. He said, but there is one truth one thread that continues to move through that. He said it's love. That love continues on into this next reality, into this next world, into this next age. To put it simply, he says, when Jesus comes back, we're still going to be loving. When Jesus comes back and restores this world, we still need love. That is the language of the age to come. And this is where the Bible is so great. This is where the gospel matters so much. This is why the story of Jesus matters so much. Because what he's saying is you don't have to wait for it. You don't have to anticipate it. You don't have to look for it to come. It's available to you right here and right now. That is life. That is the life that Jesus promised to us. The language of that life is love. He says, you don't have to wait to experience that love until completeness comes. You got it today. This is awesome. This is incredible. This is this reality that, guys, we live in the future. We get some of that here right now. When you say, man, life is a bummer. This isn't the way things are supposed to be. You say, I know. But man, it's going to be beautiful someday. And I get some of that right now. I get some of that right here. 
I get to experience that here today in the here and the now. That's love. So Paul is saying you get to see a glimpse of what God has prepared for us when you be love. Make sense to you guys? When we be that kind of love, trying to put that in the weirdest way I can put it so it makes sense to us, that's when we get a glimpse. Then he goes on, he says, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. Again, it doesn't make sense until we start to connect it again. Paul said that all this stuff, all this stuff that they're talking about seems impressive. All these gifts that they're desiring for the church to look like the kind of church everybody wants church to be, he said all of that seems impressive. But he said that's just the beginning. Paul points to this idea that we can't just stay there. Here's what I think he's getting at. I think he's getting that if we're not careful, that we can fill our lives with good things but still be empty. That we have to understand things at a deeper level, including love. See, if I'm not careful, I'll hold on to the childish way that I viewed love. What are children? Children can be selfish. Not our children, right? They can be self-centered right? They can be self-absorbed. That's okay. Don't, don't go giving your kid a hard time because they're self-centered. They're a child. But if you're acting like that, it's okay to look and say, you're being childish. Probably in the mirror to yourself would be. But this idea, right? I don't want to be selfish. I don't want to be self-absorbed. I'm a grown-up now. I put that stuff behind me. He says that's, that's what we're talking about here with love. When you grow up, you're expected to put away selfishness. When you, when you grow up, you don't look for love as much as you live it, right? Maturity is this. It's a place where we realize that love isn't dependent on others. It's dependent on us. It's not something we look for in others, it's something that we become. I don't know, I think another way that Paul may have said this is this, if you want to experience love, you have to make it a verb. That's what grown-ups do. I think that's what he's saying, I hear, and I hear me out on this. I don't think this is an invitation in life to be trampled on or treated poorly. I don't think that at all. That's not healthy relationships. I think what Paul is saying is that this is an invitation to ask yourself some hard questions. Am I becoming the kind of person that I want to be neighbors with, friends with, work with, date, or be married to? Is that how I love? Am I becoming the kind of person that I want to date? Am I becoming the kind of person that I want to be married to? Am I becoming the kind of person that I want to work with? Am I becoming the kind of person that I would want to be neighbors with? Is that how I love? But that only takes us so far, right? We've already concluded we don't have this all figured out. We aren't perfect. Every one of us is a work in progress. So there, there has to be another model for this, right? And that's the answer. The answer is yes. 
It takes us back to where Paul learned this from Jesus. So let's go back to what Jesus said and listen to how he finishes that sentence. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. In other words, do unto others as I have done unto you. See, how many of us wait to see what someone else will do before we decide what we will do? How many of us wait to see if someone else will treat us a certain way before we decide to treat somebody else a certain way? How many of us think at work, well, if they throw me under the bus, I'll probably throw them under the bus. If they give me credit, maybe I'll give them credit. How many of us in marriage kind of wait and the bed has been undone for weeks because we're waiting for somebody else to make the bed before we'll do it? How much is that a metaphor for our lives? How many things have we left unsaid or undone? How many regrets do we have in relationships because we're waiting for somebody else to make the first move? And how many of us need to be loved first? That's what he's saying. Is He's saying, listen, there's a model here. Do on others the way that I've done. You go first. You go first the way that I did. We ask things like, are they forgiving? Are they patient? Are they keeping a scorecard in the relationship? So I'll do the same. And Jesus says there's a different way to live. Jesus says, show kindness. This is how I loved you. Show forgiveness. Show patience. Show mercy the way that I showed. The way Jesus showed that to us is described in these verses. Listen to this. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God. Because God is love. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. See, we we may not We may not always live out the love the way that Jesus commanded, right? We we may not always live out love the way that he expects us to. But when we set our eyes on the example of the cross, we can begin to move toward this way that we're supposed to live. It's hard to be loved. It's hard to be the things of Jesus, but that's why we follow Jesus. He says, follow me into something so new and so radical and so different that the world will never be the same. He says, church, you can be all these other things, but if you're not following me into the future with love, you're not following He says, follow my example. And he says, my example is the cross. My example is what I have given for you. So as we conclude the service today, we're going to come to this table. And we're going to experience communion together. 
If you've decided to look to the cross, to follow the way of Jesus, this table is open to you. And this table is where we come to remember what God has done for us. His body broken for us, His blood poured out for us, so that we can experience the kind of life that He has promised. That we can see and live and experience His example of love given for us as the way that we're to live and love others. So as you come forward, you'll take a piece of bread that represents the body of Christ broken for you. You'll dip it in this cup that represents His blood poured out for us as He stepped forward in love before us. Let's pray. God, as we come to this table, God, we recognize your incredible, amazing grace and mercy and forgiveness and love. God, that you set for us an example of how to love others. Father, as we move to this table this morning, may it be a reminder to us of the move that we make in our lives as we step forward in love towards others. That God, some of those steps are hard. But God, those steps represent action, movement, direction, being the kind of people, loving the way that you have taught us. It's your name that we pray. Amen.